Well, I have to be honest this morning and say that um, I've received some funny looks today and still receiving a few. And contrary to the opinion of some, I have not returned to the beloved teenage years, nor have I forgotten how to shave. But this is what happens when you get in a weekend knock-down, drag-out fight with a very large and dangerous vine of poison ivy. (laughs) And you think I look bad, you should see the poison ivy that is now enjoying the sights and smells and sounds of the Shelby County landfill. (laughs) Let's go to God in prayer as we look at his word together today. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it now for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, October 2nd, 2006 was a very frightening day in the community of Nickel Mines in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. On 10.25 a.m. that morning... A shooter entered into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and held a number of young girls hostage, armed with a 9mm handgun, among other weapons. He, less than an hour later, went on a shooting rampage that left five young girls dead and five others wounded. Following that shooting, Charles Roberts took his own life. Any tragedy like this is nerve-wracking and seemingly unexplainable. How could someone have so much rage and bitterness and hostility built up inside of them against others who have never done anything to harm them? And how can the families of those that have lost loved ones, children began to even move on with their lives. Yet the response of the Amish community in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in the wake of such a tragedy, was shocking. According to news reports, on the day of the shooting, a grandfather of one of the murdered Amish girls warned some young relatives not to hate the killer saying, we must not think evil of this man. Another man who was a member of the Brethren community living near the Amish explained, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. A spokesperson for the Roberts family, the family of the murderer said an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family just hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. Amish community members visited and comforted Robert's widow, his parents, and his parents-in-law. And according to at least one report, an Amish man held the killer's sobbing father in his arms reportedly for as long as an hour in order to comfort him. The Amish community even set up a charitable fund for 
the shooter's family. An estimated 30 members of the Amish community attended Robert's funeral, and Marie Roberts, the widow of the shooter, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of one of the victims. Extending forgiveness is not a natural thing for men and women to do unless they have received forgiveness. And I firmly believe that the reason the Amish community and the families of these victims responded in the way that they did is that they believed that they were the recipients of incredible forgiveness themselves. And that forgiveness comes from God. That's the truth that we're going to look at this morning from God's Word in Matthew chapter 18. We'll see that those truly forgiven will truly forgive. Those truly forgiven will truly forgive. We'll continue looking at the words and the teachings of Jesus Christ himself, the divine storyteller. So I want to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 as we look at what Jesus taught on the subject of mercy and forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. We'll stop right there for just a couple minutes. But this conversation between Peter and Jesus is found in the context of Jesus' teaching on restoration. And we saw this last week as we looked at the first uh, part of this chapter. And Jesus taught a story about uh, a wandering sheep, a wandering believer who had wandered away from genuine faith in and devotion to Christ. And God's pursuit of that child in order to restore that child to the faithful devotion to Him. And then in the next text, the next passage beginning in verse 15 of this chapter, which is uh, the biblical text between that passage, the parable of the wandering sheep, and our text for this morning, Jesus gives clear instructions on how to confront a brother or sister in the church who's been entrapped in sin. And he writes guidelines about going to that believer who's, who's been wrapped up in sin and and confronting them in that sin all for the purpose of restoring them to the flock. Restoring them to the church. Restoring them to proper relationship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And to proper relationship with their master. And so it's in that context of restoration that this conversation takes place between Jesus and Peter. And so... Peter asks Jesus then, he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, now Peter understood Jesus' heightened focus on restoration and forgiveness. It wasn't that he had missed the point. This kind of reminds me of the popular saying, fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Perhaps the 
unspoken third line of that uh, little quotation could be for me thrice and I'm never going to have anything to do with you. In other words, it makes sense to, to cut somebody a little slack. We all make mistakes, do we not? Somebody offends us once, sure, we can offer them forgiveness. Someone offends us again, sure, we can do it again. But there becomes a point where it's hard to extend mercy and forgiveness to a repeat offender. And so Peter ups the, the question. It's up to seven times. And this, this was nothing new. This was not a, a new battle, a new struggle. In fact, in Jesus' day, during his life, and during the time in which he was teaching, the Jewish rabbis taught that it was perfectly good and acceptable to forgive someone up to three times a sin that they had committed against you. Or forgive them the first time, forgive them the second time. If, if they do it again, forgive them a third time. But no need to forgive someone the same sin after three times. And so you can imagine the response that Peter thought he was going to get when, when he understood Jesus increasing the standard. He said, how many times, Jesus? Up to seven times? Just waiting for... His Lord to commend him. Yes, Peter, good response. And I love what William Barclay says about this. He says, Peter obviously expected Jesus to say, Splendid, Peter. You could not possibly act more nobly than that. And I don't know if that's the exact verbiage that went through Peter's head, but I do know how Jesus responded. And Jesus responded in verse 22. I tell you, not seven times... But 77 times. In some translations it reads 70 times 7 times. The Greek here could be read either way. We don't know if this is 70 times 7 times or 77 times. But the point is the same. And the point that Jesus was honing in on is that Christians are to forgive without limitation. Christians are to forgive without limitation. Followers of Christ, believers in Christ are to extend forgiveness and mercy to their fellow brothers and sisters without keeping count, without keeping tally. And as Jesus often did after giving a principle or stating a truth, giving a command, he then told a story to illustrate his point. So look back at Matthew chapter 18 beginning in verse 23. Therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the, pay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So Jesus tells this story in the lot in light of a question from Peter about forgiveness. And he tells a story about a servant who owed his master, his king, a great debt. In the NIV translation of which I just read, he, he owed him ten thousand bags of gold. Now this is a modern attempt to uh, to bring this into contemporary language, but most translations read 10,000 talents. Now, most of us today don't count or keep our money in talents, but I dare say if we did, none of us would have 10,000 of them. And I say that because most scholars believe that 10,000 talents was equal to roughly a billion dollars. A billion dollars. And just in case someone does know what a billion dollars looks like, many scholars actually have stated that this is probably more like six billion dollars. And so the point is, this servant owed his master an astronomical debt. A debt that he could not pay nor was there any way that he was ever going to repay this debt. And as a result, he, he begs for mercy from his master. And because he was not able to pay, verse 25, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And this was an attempt to, to make things right. To give up what he did have. To begin to pay on that debt. But even so, it never would have become close. It never would have come close. Because in that day, a a very good slave would have sold for maybe a talent. In fact, it was much more common that a slave would sell for one-tenth of a talent. And this man owed 10,000 of these. And when he begged for mercy from his master, the king did something amazing, something unthinkable. Verse 27, he took pity on him. He canceled the debt and let him go. Wrote it off and let him walk a free man, not owing him anything else. If you have a mortgage payment, just imagine for a moment your your lender calling you up and Saying, hey, I've got plenty of money. Don't worry about it. You don't owe me another penny. And now multiply that by whatever it takes to reach $6 billion. And you're in the neighborhood of what we're talking here. And yet this servant goes out and comes across a fellow servant who owed him 100 silver coins, verse 28. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. He demanded a hundred silver coins or a hundred denarii. 
This was roughly the equivalent of a hundred days of work for the common labor. So no, no doubt a, a debt to take note of. This is a significant amount of money, but doesn't even begin to compare to the 10,000 talents. This is, this is a payable debt. This is a manageable debt. This is a debt that, that anybody could work toward eliminating, getting rid of. And servant does the same thing that he did before his king. He, he begged for mercy, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused, verse 30, instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Even a cheap slave or a cheap servant in that day sold for 500 denarii. This man only owed him 100 denarii and he had him thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. And as you can imagine, when the other servants saw what had happened, verse 31, they were outraged. And they went and told the king, who was also outraged, and called in the other servant, the one that had been forgiven his debt and called him a wicked servant and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay the debt back, which, of course, he would never be able to do. And then Jesus concludes this parable in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And in this story, in this comparison, this parable that Jesus told, the king or the master is God. And the truth is that God has graciously canceled our debt. God has graciously canceled our debt. All of us owe our Creator a debt that we cannot pay, a debt that is astronomical that we can never work off, that we can never eliminate on our own. And that's the debt of sin, of disobedience, of rebellion against the Creator who fashioned us together and breathed life into us, the One who sustains us and watches over us day by day, the only eternal Lord, The only perfect God. And yet, even though we owe Him that sort of debt, that type of debt, God has had tremendous mercy on us, finding a way to pay the debt that we could not owe Him. And He did so through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the perfect and sinless One who could be sacrificed on our behalf so that we could then receive forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration with our Creator. The truth is, like David said in Psalm 51, all of us have sinned against God. Sure, we sin against our neighbor when we wrong him. We sin against our leaders and teachers and parents when we dishonor them. And we sin against our spouses when we fail to love them. But all of our sin is ultimately sin against God. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. All have missed the standard. As a result, we owe God a debt that we cannot pay. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We owe God a tremendous debt, but through His Son, He has canceled our debt. Canceled the the debt that we owe Him. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Though we owe our Creator a debt that we cannot pay, He has graciously, freely canceled our debt against Him. And we see from this parable that Jesus told that that kind of mercy affects those who receive it. We see that genuine believers will extend mercy to others because their hearts have been transformed by God's mercy. Genuine believers will extend mercy and forgiveness and compassion and love to others because their hearts have been transformed, changed by God's mercy. The servant in this parable that was forgiven an astronomical debt, the mercy of his master obviously had no real impact on his heart. But on the contrary, the mercy of the King of Kings, the mercy of the Lord of Lords, leaves an impact on all who truly understand, receive, and believe in the Gospel. Genuine believers will extend mercy to others because their hearts have been transformed by God's mercy. If you realize the gravity, the greatness of your sin against a holy and righteous and perfect and just God and the mercy that He has showered on you and me through the sacrifice of Christ in our place, on our behalf, then you will be compelled to act differently toward your neighbor. You will be compelled to extend forgiveness and mercy and compassion and love toward those that offend you. It doesn't mean that it will be easy, especially for repeat offenders. But remember, that is the context in which Jesus told this story. And because when we trust in Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and begins a process, a work of transformation in our lives, it is possible to forgive those who wrong us. And not only is it possible, it is a requirement for followers of Christ. It is a command of Christ to extend the same forgiveness and mercy toward our fellow man. An unforgiving heart reveals an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart reveals an unforgiven heart. That's a truth that we see right here in this, this parable. That the first servant was not changed, was not transformed by the mercy of his master. But you and I, if we have truly trusted in Christ for salvation, if we have truly placed our faith and received the gift of grace that He has extended to us for our good and His glory, then, then we will be different. 
It will leave an impact on us. A truly forgiven heart truly forgives others. And the unforgiven will receive the just penalty for their disobedience. The unforgiven will receive the just penalty for their disobedience. We see that carried out right here in this story that Jesus told, verses 34 and 35, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Those that are unforgiven, that fail to recognize their sin before a just and holy God and repent of it and receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, remain unforgiven and as such will receive the due penalty for all those who have been unreconciled to God. And as we've seen in this series and other parables, other stories that that Jesus told, that due penalty is the horrific eternal judgment of an almighty God. Those truly forgiven will truly forgive. It's important that we recognize that God doesn't extend mercy to us or compassion to us or grace to us based on how we treat our fellow brother or sister. And to believe so would be to misread what Jesus is saying and to misunderstand the teachings of Scripture. God isn't good to us based on how good we are to others. God doesn't extend mercy to us based on our mercy that we show others. No, God's mercy comes first. His mercy is shown, extended to us, and the mercy that we show our fellow man or woman is a response to recognizing and receiving the great mercy of God in our lives. And as such, it's an indication of our salvation. It's a sign, an outward sign that we have truly recognized our need for a Savior and received the tremendous grace that God has shown us in Christ. And as we conclude, I want to offer three starting points for connecting the truth of this passage to each of our lives today. And the first is, I think we're cautioned to look to Christ for assurance of salvation. To look to Christ for assurance of salvation. The mercy that we show others is an indication of our salvation, but it is not the basis of our salvation. And the moment we begin to to base our salvation on anything other than Christ, on any good deed that we might do, we have stepped into something that is not Christianity at all. Scripture says clearly that salvation is by grace through faith 
in Jesus Christ. So let's look to Christ and what he has done for us for assurance of our salvation, of our forgiveness, of our reconciliation with our good and perfect and loving creator. And let's also reflect on the debt that we've been forgiven. Look to Christ for assurance of salvation and reflect on the debt you have been forgiven. In our day and in our culture, we have drastically downplayed the seriousness, the gravity of sin. And sure, we do this with specific sins from time to time at various points in church history that seem to become blind spots for us. But right now, I'm not thinking of specific sins, but of sin in general. We have believed the lie that we are really not that bad. Scripture teaches that we are corrupt at the core, sinful in our hearts, always looking out, pridefully looking out for what's best for ourselves, even at the expense of others. Yet even so, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So reflect on the debt you've been forgiven. Look to Christ for assurance of salvation. And finally, forgive those who have wronged you. Forgive those who have wronged you. Jesus said in Luke 6.36, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Who have you not forgiven? Who has wronged you to which you have not forgiven? Make it right today. And if this relationship is such that you need to to verbalize that to that person, to restore that relationship, then you do that today. But forgive others as you have been forgiven. Because those truly forgiven will in turn forgive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. Your mercy, the great mercy and compassion that you've shown each of us. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding and believing and applying your word to our lives today. Lord, that we would, that we would all reflect on the, the truth of your gospel, the truth of your word, the truth of the unmerciful servant. Lord, that you would remind us of the great debt that you canceled on our behalf so that we could spend eternity with you in your glorious presence. Lord, that you would remind us that if we've trusted in Christ, we've gone from an enemy of God to a child of God who will spend eternity in the presence of God. Remind us of your grace on us today, Lord, and may we in turn be merciful be forgiving, be compassionate, and be loving toward our fellow man because of the goodness of our God. Lord, we thank you for these few moments. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to lead us and to teach us and to convict us and to challenge us, to change us, to transform us for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.